hello again. This is a reminder that we do talk about sexual abuse on this podcast and that it can be hard to listen to. You think you bottled up the guy, you say, okay, be celibate, okay? And now I'm going to surround you with kids. A, a big part of the, the current problem uh, has to do with homosexuality uh, and the tolerance of a homosexual culture. And basically they say that being homosexual or celibate did not play a role at all in the abuse. You tend to think of priests as the, uh, something out of an old Pat O'Brien movie. You tend not to think of it as a felon. What is your reaction when you hear the argument made that celibacy contributes to child sexual abuse? I have a lot of reactions. The first one is sympathy, actually. I really want to listen to people who are making that argument well. Because every argument emerges from life experience. These people are not saying this for no reason. I think that most people who are making this argument have seen unhealthy celibate living and are saying, hey, there might be something going on here. That's my first reaction. Hmm. My second reaction is um, I feel a little wounded by that question. And I don't mean to throw stones, but I know in my own experience the depth of beauty that this has brought into my life and the way that my own celibate chastity has allowed me to give my heart away to people who have benefited from it. From America Media, I'm Maggie Van Dorn, and this is Deliver Us, a podcast about the sex abuse crisis in the Catholic Church and where we go from here. This episode, we're trying to answer a big question. Why does abuse seem so prevalent in the Catholic Church? Is there something about the Church, or about priests, that causes abuse? Let me take a moment to try to explain, although I admit I don't quite understand it myself. So I get why you may not fully understand it either. This is Luis Torres, Jr. He addressed the U.S. bishops at their Baltimore meeting last year. Abuse of a child is the closest that you can get to murder and still possibly have a breathing body before you. When a child has been abused, particularly by someone whom they trust, you have destroyed the child. We are starting from the premise that child sexual abuse, wherever it happens, is profoundly damaging. And we don't want it to happen anywhere. Not in the Catholic Church, not in public schools, not in families. Everyone, no matter which communities they belong to, should be invested in understanding the nature of this problem. But why is this such an issue in the Catholic Church? Now, there's a lot to unpack in that single question. Does child sexual abuse happen more frequently in the Catholic Church than in other institutions? Since historically the majority of victims are male, are gay priests to blame? Is there anything in Catholic culture that increases the likelihood of abuse? And then there's the follow-up question. I get it no matter who I'm talking to. Sometimes the question is posed gingerly, words are minced. Other times it's barely a question at all. It's an assumption. It's gotta be celibacy, right? 
Celibacy is the practice of abstaining from sexual activity and marriage. Catholic priests commit to celibacy. So the assumption here is that if Catholic priests weren't repressing their natural sexual instincts, they wouldn't act out in this horrific way. But on the other hand, non-celibate people also abuse children. In fact, the majority of child abuse happens within families. We also know that child abuse happens in public schools, in Boy Scouts, and even the U.S. Olympic gymnastics team. There have been reports of abuse in the Anglican Church, where priests are not required to be celibate, in ultra-Orthodox Jewish communities, and in Christian evangelical churches. What makes most of these religious communities different from the Catholic Church is that they don't have a centralized structure, like a local diocese or the Vatican, to keep meticulous records. So while abuse does occur in other religious communities, it's much more difficult to track. But what about my faith community? I still need to take a hard look at what might be contributing to the problem in the Catholic priesthood. So on this episode, we'll talk to a psychologist who studies clergy sexual abuse. We'll hear about one large-scale American study that looked into this. And we'll ask the question you've always wanted to ask your priest but never knew how. How's your celibate life going? One of the first questions I had about the sex abuse crisis was why. I wanted to understand what kind of pathology could drive someone to harm a child in such a perverse way. And here's why I think it matters. For decades, the Catholic Church received contradictory advice about how to treat predator priests. Remember Father Gagan, the priest whose serial molestations launched Spotlight's investigation in Boston? Well, One psychiatrist report from 1984 said that Gagan had, quote, no psychiatric restrictions to his work as a parish priest. Some years later, St. Luke's Institute wrote, it is our clinical judgment that Father Gagan has a longstanding and continuing problem with sexual attraction to prepubescent males. To further complicate things, we've since learned that several psychiatric institutions relied mostly on self-reporting in their assessments. Had the church supplied victims' reports of Gagan's behavior, they might have arrived at a different diagnosis. And even when bishops did get a recommendation that a priest be removed from ministry, they didn't always comply. In 2002, it was estimated that the church had spent over $50 million treating priests and then returning them to ministry. So child abuse was treated like a sinful action you could repent from, instead of a pathological behavior. This was a grave mistake. So if we want to heal the church of sexual abuse, we have to start with an accurate diagnosis. To get one, I reached out to Dr. Thomas Plant. So my name is Thomas Plant, and my title is a professor of psychology at Santa Clara University, and I'm also an adjunct professor of psychiatry at Stanford University School of Medicine. Tom's been studying the psychology of Catholic clergy for three decades, so I hoped he would be able to help me understand what factors might contribute to child sexual abuse. 
you have a lot of comorbidity with other kind of psychiatric diagnoses like alcoholism and other kinds of substance abuse problems. You also have comorbidity with uh, affective disorders like anxiety and depression. And you have comorbidity with personality disorders as well. So there's a lot of other psychiatric issues that are going on with these folk other than just um, sex offending. Research has also shown that many abusive priests were themselves victims of child abuse. This doesn't mean that if someone was abused as a child, they will automatically become abusers themselves. But it is a risk factor. So there's a lot going on here. But what's most shocking to me about these studies is that child sexual abuse isn't always perpetrated by pedophiles. Again, they come in very different flavors. Uh, Some are truly pedophiles. Some are really not. So if a priest isn't attracted to children or adolescents, why would he target them? Sometimes this is the place where people assume that gay priests might be the answer, because most of the victims of clergy sexual abuse are male. But Tom says there's something else going on. These are people who are basically targeting anyone who they have access to. And the John Jay College of Criminal Justice, in their studies, when they were looking at the um, causes and context of the abuse crisis in the church, they found that the majority of offenders are what we call situational generalists. Situational generalists. That was a new term for me. But it's really important to understanding this crisis. So what is a situational generalist? I've treated and evaluated a lot of these guys. They don't necessarily see themselves targeting boys or girls or young people or older people. They will target whatever they have easy access to. And back in the day, in the 1950s and 60s and 70s and so forth, for the most part, priests had access to boys. Access. The priests had access to boys because they were coaching sports teams, teaching in all-boys schools, or looking after altar boys. Catholic culture has evolved considerably over the decades, but at the height of the crisis in the 70s, it was far more common for a priest to have interaction with young boys than with girls. It's hard to get our minds around, because in the headlines, we hear the term pedophile over and over. When in reality, only 5% of the accused priests fit the true definition of a pedophile, someone who repeatedly and exclusively targets prepubescent children. But why does it matter if someone's a pedophile or a generalist? They're all guilty of abusing vulnerable people. The vast majority of these crimes cannot be explained by pedophilia or even sexual orientation. Instead, The formula for abuse looks more like this. Psychologically impaired men in positions of unchecked power with easy access to kids. But is it really that simple? Tom told me that situational generalists would prefer to have intimate relationships with consenting adults. They just lack the social skills. But even if a priest wanted to have a sexual relationship with a consenting adult, he couldn't because he's committed to celibacy. So what we really need to look at is whether there's any difference between sexual abuse among celibate priests and the non-celibate population. I asked Tom what the data looks like. 
Yeah, I mean, the research is really clear in that there's no evidence to suggest that this is more prevalent in the Catholic Church than in other religious traditions. There is less research available within other religious traditions because they haven't done these big comprehensive studies the way the Catholics have with the John Jay studies that uh, were published in 2004 and also Hold on a sec. Let me explain this thing, the John Jay study. John Jay was a report carried out by the John Jay College of Criminal Justice that investigated the causes of sexual abuse in the Catholic Church from the 1950s to 2002. It was commissioned by the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, and its findings are based on anonymous surveys filled out by almost every diocese in the U.S. Like Tom said, the study found that the rates of child sexual abuse in the Catholic Church are no higher than the rest of the population. And honestly, this surprised me. So I went to the source. So I'm Margaret Smith. I teach at John Jay College, and my direct affiliation is with the Institute for Criminal Justice Ethics. Margaret was one of the researchers behind the John Jay report. I'm a quantitative criminologist, and I was asked to undertake the job of ensuring that the data was collected and recorded correctly. So what did the John Jay College of Criminal Justice find about celibacy? Is there a connection between celibacy and child sexual abuse? Well, we did a careful analysis of the number of priests who were accused based on the total number who were in service during the period from 1950 to 2002. We found somewhere between 3 and 6% per diocese were involved in sexual abuse. And yet, when you look at the extent of sexual abuse of young people, of youth, male and female youth, in the population, you find that, that the prevalence is very large. Mm. What is that? What well, is the rate? It, depending on how the question is asked and how much detail there is, you can get very different estimates. The number of boys who now report sexual abuse is much higher than it was 25 years ago, but ranges somewhere between 10 and 30 or 35 percent. To be clear, the rates of kids who are abused and the rates of adults who abuse are two very different numbers. Because as we know, one person can abuse many children. Those numbers Margaret just cited, the 10 to 35 percent, are referring to rates of children who report abuse in society at large. Those are the rates that have gone up in the last quarter century. And they haven't necessarily gone up because more kids are being abused. It's likely that victims have just become more inclined to report. Because when a survivor has the courage to come forward and share their story, it helps other victims to do the same. But even amidst the outpouring of survivor narratives, it's estimated that only one-third of abuse cases are ever reported. Which is one of the reasons that we as a society have failed to recognize just how prevalent abuse is. So a very large number of young people in the population in the United States are experiencing sexual abuse from adults. Clearly, the majority of the population of abusers are not celibate. So it's difficult to sustain the argument that celibacy is the cause. Tom Plant showed us that we can't explain this with celibacy alone. And Margaret Smith's research confirms that. Both say that we've tragically underestimated child sexual abuse throughout society, 
and that celibate men, statistically, are not any more likely to abuse children than their non-celibate counterparts. And they agree that most child abusers aren't attracted to children of one gender over another. It's important to distinguish homosexual behavior from homosexual identity. And so the fact that a priest had a sexual engagement with a boy or an adolescent, with an adolescent boy, is not the same as defining that priest's identity as a homosexual man. We were able to determine that something approaching 70% of the priests who had had homosexual contact with boys went on to have adult relationships, many with women. I think the instinct to blame celibacy for this crisis is understandable. For most of us, celibacy is an unknown, which makes it kind of suspicious. Just like how people who aren't familiar with the LGBTQ community might be inclined to blame gay priests. In both cases, the mistake is assuming that sexuality explains sexual abuse. But how many of us have pulled up a chair and asked a priest what it's like to be celibate? Lucky for you, I did just that. I talked to three men about their experience with celibacy and the process of priestly formation. Formation involves everything from spiritual development to academic instruction and vocational training. And the men I spoke with all had very different formations. Two were training to be diocesan priests, the kind you find serving mass at your local parish. One was training to be in a religious order. Now, Religious order priests serve in a variety of ways. In schools, hospitals, even in Catholic media. I will be talking like this. This is like me looking at Pat. (laughs) (laughs) First, there's Patrick Gothman. Patrick went through formation after the sex abuse crisis of 2002. He was training to become a diocesan priest, but eventually decided that the priesthood wasn't for him. Patrick entered the seminary when he was just 19, and he was ready to commit to celibacy. I never met a seminarian that bad-mouthed or questioned celibacy. It was like somebody asking somebody training for an Ironman, isn't it hard to get up at 4 a.m. and go run every day? You'd be like, yeah, it's hard, but this is how you do it. There was a sense of pride of, yeah, I'm doing something hard, but it's good for the church. This is how I'm going to be able to give myself fully to my parish. Even so, Patrick said it was difficult to talk about celibacy and sexuality with his fellow priests in training, though he did broach the subject with the head of his seminary. He was the first and almost the only priest that I talked to about my sexuality. Patrick felt comfortable coming to his rector because he had encouraged the seminarians to be open. Where he said, look, statistically speaking, some of y'all are going to be experiencing same-sex attraction. And given that is going to be a unique cross for you all to deal with. I hope that you would find someone on staff, a priest, to talk to about it so that you're not doing it alone. And that was kind of it. It was a a very compassionate take of that's got to be difficult. So I didn't sense any shame coming out of it. And so I was pretty, I was nervous, but I was eager to, uh, I think it was our, our very first time that he and I sat down and had a formal meeting I said, look, I got to tell you, I 
I'm experiencing same-sex attraction. And for him, that was a, it was a surprise, but again, there was no shame. There was no, this is going to be an issue. It was, oh, I didn't, I wouldn't have expected that, but all right, we'll deal with it. At the same time, he was a very masculine guy and he was very, I heard often the way he would talk about maybe other gay professors on campus or administrators. And it was clear that those were, people were an issue and that it wasn't. They were an issue. How so? It could be something as simple as, I remember him uh, saying one time that this administrator who had a bit of an effeminate personality, I remember him, it was just he and I in the car, the rector and I, and this administrator got brought up and he said something along the lines of, yeah, but does he have to be so gay? And that was it. And I, I never knew, was he bringing that up to me? Because he thought I specifically would understand. Was it kind of a warning? Don't don't ever become like that. Or was it truly just something he would have said to anybody? And I happened to be the one in the car at that moment. Mm. How um, did it leave you feeling? It left me feeling a bit shamed, and it left me feeling very clear that I needed to work on my own masculinity and my own. I, it needed to be clear that I would never go down that path because. We all loved the rector. And I feel like that is what uniquely shaped my seminary experience was this sense of what it meant to be a man. Although Patrick went through three extremely formative years in seminary, he ultimately did not become a priest. What I figured out was that I had actually never wanted to be a priest. What I wanted was to be a seminarian. I wanted the community life. I wanted to be able to serve in my parish and to, to do these really wonderful things. But I was terrified of the idea of living alone and being sent out to some country parish. That fear of isolation and loneliness ultimately caused Patrick to leave the seminary. And Patrick isn't the only person we talked to who felt lonely in his vocation. Fred Daly, a diocesan priest from Syracuse, New York, said that the diocesan lifestyle left much to be desired. You know, you go through this intense communal experience for many, for a number of years, and then you end up in a uh, rectory, either alone or with someone who is living a very uh, non-communal life. Wouldn't it be great if seminarians were living in parishes and, you know, uh, building relationships and friendships with the community and with the lay people and others, much healthier than this sort of monastic model that most of us have gone through. Fred came up through seminary in the late 60s, and back then, sexuality was hardly addressed. I can say it was a wonderful seminary experience, very uh, progressive and hopeful, but in the area of human sexuality uh, and celibacy, In the eight years in the seminary, those topics were addressed, I would say, just about zero. However, sex didn't have to be talked about in seminary in order for Fred to know what the church thought about it. In fact, the topic came up when he was just a teenager. I can remember uh, waiting in line to go to confession, and I think my knees were shaking. And so, you know, I finally got into the confessional and 
said my usual things of disobeying my parents and fighting with my brothers and sister. And then I said, uh, and I also had impure thoughts and actions with myself. And the priest said, what? And uh, so I had to repeat it. And then he said, well, do you realize you will be heading for hell if you continue this way? And he said, so every time you're tempted, light a match and burn the tip of your finger, and that'll let you know what hell will be like. Oh, no. Now, I was 13 or 14, you know? <laughs> so That's terrifying. I I always sort of joke, it's a wonder I have any fingers left, you know? <laughs> Fred has a good sense of humor when talking about this today. But he's had decades to process how his sexuality was affecting his spirituality. You know, I loved what I was doing. I loved the parish experience. But I began to sort of experience an ache within me. And little by little, a whole, I would say, sexual energy began to burst forth. And uh, I began, you know, to recognize that, my God, I'm I'm gay. Mm. And back in those days, in in the 70s, it was like a horror. You know, I was just scared to death. And by the grace of God and some good spiritual direction and some therapy, you know, uh, I was little by little able to accept who God created me to be and then ultimately rejoice in who God created me to be. Fred continues to live as a celibate priest. But when he came out as gay in 2004, his parish community accepted and supported him. Just being able to talk about his sexuality helped soothe the ache. But it's one thing to talk openly about sexuality, and another to live a life of sexual renunciation. This brings us to one of the main reasons the Catholic Church doesn't allow priests to marry. They're already hitched. Theologically speaking, priests are married to Jesus and the church they serve. My name is Father Patty Gilger. I'm a Jesuit priest from the Midwest province. Patty is different from the other two priests. He joined a religious order and entered seminary after 2002. And Patty reminds me that there's also a practical dimension to this theology of celibacy. I do not understand how it would be possible for me to give my heart fully to a wife and to children and give my heart fully to the people of God in a parish or other setting. I only know the one side of this, and I don't want to pretend to have any more knowledge than I do of that. I know what giving my heart in this way has cost me, how much it hurts, and I know how good it is, how much I love uh, a lot of people, a lot of people, and how I'm able to be involved in their lives in particularly intimate ways because of the trust that they can give me in this way. Mm-hmm. How did your novice formation directly counsel you? There are a lot of ways to understand or try to define what religion itself is. But look, what religion really is, is a way of life that involves a set of practices and a way of understanding oneself and of participating in and viewing the world. And that's what the novitiate does to you. Mm -hmm. It reframes the patterns of your life 
the relationships, the kinds and ways that you engage in relationship, the vision of life that it teaches and it teaches internally, it teaches your heart to aspire to. So it's not like there was one training session where I was on how to down. be celibate. Exactly. Like this is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It cannot work. The same reason that these things that we would want to teach in any area of any life, a one, you know, one day training session, none of these things work. Yeah, that's a great way of explaining it, that it's it's not a one off or it's not like a seminar, but that you're submitting to a whole host of practices that are gradually transforming you exactly and your right. desires. What you have just said, a set of practices that are gradually transforming you and your desires. You have just given the proper definition of liturgy. Healthy sexuality is in the midst of it. Mm -hmm. That's what has to happen, including a celibate sexuality. Celibacy is a sexuality. Huh. It's a practice of sexuality. Can you say more about that? Yes. Yeah. Uh, ch celibate chastity is a practice of sexuality. It is not repression. It's a way of channeling the desires that sexuality itself is oriented towards. Intimacy, procreation, love, union. This gets channeled in a different way. Yeah. I think often people assume that sexuality is referring to sexual intercourse, sure. sex itself. Yeah. But you're saying that sexuality might actually be this range of desires um, around intimacy and vulnerability and community and that there is a way to direct them yes. that doesn't necessarily involve sex. No, no. Now, there is a loss because sex itself is a gift. There is an abstinence there, an abnegation that does create pain, loss, sacrifice. Those things are all present there. Of course they are, right? But uh, I certainly do not think this. But just to say, for anyone who thinks that celibate chastity is the only way that abnegation is involved with sexuality, that's a ridiculous joke. Like, that's a joke. Right, because we all are sacrificing parts of our, of our sexuality, especially if we're in a committed monogamous relationship. 100%. 100%. And couples persons who are living their sexuality well will experience very similar, analogous, deeply painful, deeply beautiful tensions with regard to the challenge of abnegation to their sexuality that they're called to. Yeah, because they've, they've taken vows to one another. Exactly. Talking to these guys... It's clear that not every priest finds abstaining from sex to be damaging. Patty even felt that it allowed him to give himself more fully to his community. But it's also clear that in many seminaries, formation around celibacy is mostly about what not to do. Don't have sex. Don't even talk about sex. Which leaves priests to figure out how to deal with celibacy on their own. So maybe it shouldn't surprise us that some priests don't figure it out. And when these priests aren't given a space to talk about sexuality, that can encourage an unhealthy secrecy, which in turn can lead to cover-up. Those same priests can become bishops and cardinals, leading to high-profile scandals throughout the world, even in the Vatican. So my takeaway here is that even if celibacy isn't the root cause of abuse, 
The church clearly needs to talk more about how celibacy can be lived well. There's a popular saying in Alcoholics Anonymous, you're only as sick as your secrets. And given the decades of shame, secrecy, and cover-up, I'd say our Catholic Church is in need of regular checkups. Next time on Deliver Us. Marty says, I want Spotlight Team to go deep into this, and so we did. And one of the lawyers involved who talked to us initially said what the church was effectively doing was paying hush money to keep this a secret. And if the church in Boston was doing it this way, the chances were really, really good that all the other dioceses and archdioceses around the country were handling it the exact same way. If we don't hold the most powerful institutions and the most powerful individuals to account, who are we supposed to hold to account? Deliver Us is produced by America Media in collaboration with Spoke Studios. I'm Maggie Van Dorn, your host and an executive producer with Eric Sundrup. Our producers are Sarah Esikoff, Rebecca Seidel, and Eloise Blondio, with assistance in concept and story development from Sam Sawyer and Carrie Weber. Promotion and outreach from Amber Smith. Production help from Karen Freeman and Mary Beth Thoreau. Our sound design is by Rebecca Seidel. Our theme music was composed and produced by Chris McCormick. You can find additional music credits in our show notes. This episode was written by me, Maggie Van Dorn. If you've been sexually assaulted, you can get confidential support 24-7 through the National Sexual Assault Hotline. The number for the hotline is 800-656-HOPE. That's 800 656 46 you can also visit RAIN.org. That's www.rainn.org. If you are reporting sexual abuse from Catholic clergy or looking for support from the church, you can also contact your diocese victim assistance coordinator. Contact information for each diocese is available at usccb.org forward slash VAC. That's usccb.org forward slash VAC.